Thanks so much to Laura for um, playing for us today and coordinating all of our praise as Dean has been away. And thanks to our singers for helping us to worship God tonight, and we appreciate that so much. Thank you. Well, we're living in a time when guidebooks for living have become increasingly popular. Do you ever notice that? All of those bestseller lists seem to have guidebooks with all kinds of steps. And that, of course, has slowly but surely crept into Christian culture. So, you just need to go into certain Christian bookshops, and you'll see all kinds of books. You know, it's five ways to be a better disciple, seven secrets to a better marriage, nine steps to contentment. And there are lots of books with those kinds of titles, and here are some of them on the screen. And some of those books may be absolutely fine. I'm not endorsing any single book up there tonight that was just taken off the internet as an example. But while we are called to grow as disciples, and we should be growing, and you hear me proclaim that from God's Word so often, and while we must take responsibility for our actions, and you hear me proclaim that from God's Word as well, the danger becomes that it then is all about us, and the gospel is relegated in importance. That it's all about what I can do, what I must do, what I need to do, what I try and do. And the thing is, that way of thinking does not appear in the Scriptures. That approach does not happen in the Bible, and especially here in the book of 1 Timothy, as we'll see in just a moment. But having said that, this is a book that has lots of teaching about godly living. Hopefully, you've noticed that over the last few months as we have really taken our time to work our way through all of the verses in this book. And remember that Paul, through Timothy, is instructing a church as to how they ought to, believe, to, to behave as God's people. This is the way in which you should conduct yourselves. This is the way in which you should be as the people of God in your church. And within this letter, Paul has been reminding them of the purpose for this kind of right living. So, if we look tonight at the first couple of verses that we read, and if you want to look at those verses again in your Bibles in 1 Timothy 3 in verse 14, and I've underlined the key part as far as we're concerned, although Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, I am writing to you with these instructions so that if I am delayed, and this is the bit, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. And look at how he describes the church. He describes it as the pillar and the foundation of the truth. We have a very big role in this world. We have an incredible calling as a church. Think about that tonight, that as a church here in Connor, so much rests upon us. We are the pillar. We are the foundation of the truth. So, our godly living really matters. 
it is very important. And tonight we come to the center point of this whole letter and Paul's argument. This godly lifestyle that he's been teaching about, the way in which people in God's household should behave. Why should we live such a life? Indeed, what is the the secret to this kind of living? Is it self-improvement? Is it resolution? Oh, I must try harder. I must do better. Is it a program of six steps that we can take in order to measure up? Well, no. What we discover here is that godliness is rooted in and it comes about because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if there's one headline from tonight's sermon, if there is one soundbite to take home, it is that godliness comes about because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so tonight, with that in mind, we return once again to the book of 1 Timothy. And because we have Ben along with us one Sunday night a month, and because of all kinds of other services that seem to happen over the the course of the year, this has been a bit of a sporadic series. So let's remember the basics as we return to this book tonight. Remember that while it's called 1 Timothy, Timothy is not the writer. He is the recipient of this letter, and he is a young pastor working in Ephesus, a church that Paul planted as he preached the gospel there. And the writer of the letter is the Apostle Paul. We don't need to go into all the background about him. We know who Paul is. And what that means is that we can say about this letter that we're reading tonight that it is both personal and prophetic. It's personal because Paul is writing to a really good friend, Timothy. There is no one in the Christian work that he is closer to than this young man, Timothy. And that means that we get perhaps here closer to the mind of Paul than anywhere else in Scripture. These letters, if you want to describe it like this, enable us to see Paul's heart. But also, and it's important that we don't miss this part, it is prophetic. So, while it was a letter written by one person to another person, this is God's Word to us all. Remember how Paul introduces himself at the beginning of the letter? He says that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. That is his calling to be a a messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we trust what Scripture says about itself, that it is God-breathed, that it is God's Word to us. And each time we come to this letter, that therefore gives us great confidence, doesn't it? Because we know that we're hearing from God, we're hearing what God wants us to know, what God wants us to understand. And that also means that we should come to this with great obedience, that we should take seriously everything that we read here in this letter. And so far, Paul has taught 
on things of great importance. He's instructed Timothy on what he in turn is to teach the believers in this church in Ephesus. And all that we've read so far points to the importance of particular things. It points to the importance of sound doctrine. If you remember back to the start of the letter, Paul was instructing Timothy to be bold and to stand up and refute the false teaching that was going on within the church. As people had started to move away from their belief in salvation being found in Jesus alone. So, sound doctrine really matters. We also get to see in this letter just how important worship is. And we know that worship is the most important activity that we can do in life. It is the most important thing that a human being can engage in. And in fact, let's just pause and stop and think about that for a moment. Really think about the implications of that. If people within this congregation grasp that, there wouldn't be big gaps between me and you tonight. People would be here, and you should continue to be here. There is nothing that you can do, no time spent with family, no time spent doing other things, as precious as that might be, even, and please understand me when I say this, in the life of the church, even going about the task of evangelism and all of these other things, they must have their place. That worship is at the pinnacle. There is nothing that is more important. It's what you're made for. It's what I have been created for. And so, Paul says it is so important to worship in the right way, in the way that God desires, in a God-glorifying way that is pleasing to Him. And then another thing that Paul has revealed the importance of is leadership in the church. And when you think about it, because the church is precious to God, how do we know that it's precious? Well, because He gave His Son for it. It cost His Son his life. And because He proclaims that His church is His holy nation, it is a royal priesthood, it is a people who are belonging to Him. And it's the way in which His holiness will be demonstrated to the world. Therefore, it is crucial that the church is led in the right way and by the right people. And that's what Paul has been talking about in this chapter. So, that last time we considered verses 1 to 7, and we thought about the role of the overseer or the elder. It's a, a job that, that, that Paul describes as being a noble task. And with that designation comes a huge challenge, a huge challenge for elders here. If this is a noble task, then we are called in our character, in our life, to match the nobility of the task that we have been called to. But it's also a huge challenge to everyone sitting here in church tonight. Do we respect, do we recognize the authority of our elders and the nobility of the task that they have in leading us? And we're now going to skip past verses 8 to 13, not because they're unimportant. 
This is Paul's teaching on deacons, but because we looked at this passage recently when having our election of a church committee at the end of last year, and suffice to say that while there is not an exact correlation between the members of our church committee and the role of deacon that's referred to in these verses, there is enough of an overlap that we should expect our committee members to be like this. If you read those verses later on, we should expect those who have recently been elected to our church committee to be worthy of respect, to be temperate and honest and deeply committed to Christ with a good knowledge of the gospel and the doctrines of faith. Now, that's been a bit of a, a speedy review of all that we have considered in this book so far. And I've done that for a particular reason this evening. It's important. It's in order that we can understand the context in which Paul writes these final verses here in chapter 3. So, let's very quickly turn our attention to the end of chapter 3 and the verses 14 to 16. And it's verse 16 in particular that we'll take a few moments to think about. And these verses are the center point of this book, not only because they come at the midpoint of the letter, but because they provide for us the central argument of this book. This is the reason why Paul wrote to Timothy in the first place. If you look in verse 16, Paul talks about the mystery or the secret of godliness. That's a, a kind of strange phrase, and we'll come back to that in a moment. And what's really clear is that when Paul wrote this letter, the practical life of the church, the godliness of its people was something that he was really concerned about. So, if you were to do a survey of the New Testament, there are 15 occurrences of that word godliness in the New Testament. And of the 15, 13 come in these pastoral letters that Paul writes. First and Second Timothy and Titus, and of those occurrences, nine of them are found here in First Timothy. This is something that is really on Paul's mind, inspired by the Holy Spirit as he sits down and writes this letter to his friend Timothy. And remember that these letters were written towards the end of Paul's life and ministry, and he understood that. So, he would have been wanting to get out there the things that were really important, and godliness is right at the forefront of all of that. But how do we define godliness? Well, let's think about how society, how the, the world around us, how the community around us would define godliness. And almost in my mind, if I try and think about how people would consider godliness, it's not so much a list of words, it's a picture that would be in my mind. And it's a picture of a person who is passive and kind of ineffectual and very contemplative, a bit like the, the archetypal TV vicar. So, if you ever watch the soaps or you watch comedy shows in the past, and you know the kind of TV vicar, hands are always kind of like this, and a kind of slightly, maybe, I was going to say camp, can you even say that in this year, but that kind of ineffectual, you know, 
more tea, Victor? Was it Derek Nimmo was the, the kind of classic actor who played these TV vicars? And in many people's minds, that's what godliness amounts to. It's pretty passive and ineffective. And it's someone who isn't really doing much in the world. Well, the Bible, of course, blows apart that kind of idea as to what godliness is all about. Here's a long quotation alert. Um, it's a quotation that comes from Bran Chapel and Kent Hughes in their commentary, their ESV commentary on First and Second Timothy and Titus. Now, this is quite wordy in a way that pastors can be, especially ones who write books and do really well at that. But please listen to this definition here. What godliness is not and what godliness it is. And they say of Paul and what he's saying in this letter, for Paul, godliness is no static stained glass word. No, it is active, kinetic obedience that springs from a reverent awe of God. So, that's where godliness comes from. It begins with that sense of awe. Think of Isaiah in the temple and the vision that he's granted of God in his holiness. Woe is me, that kind of thing. And it's all that results in action. So, godliness is not piety as we generally think of it. There we go, upturned eyes and folded hands. Godliness cannot be cloistered. It can't be closed away. It's not like some monastic thing. The godly among us are those people whose reverent worship of God flows into obedience throughout the week. Only God-struck doers of the Word can rightly be termed godly. So, there's your definition of godliness, a reverent worship of God that flows into obedience through the week. So, godliness is not confined to an hour or two hours on a Sunday. And only God-struck doers of the Word can be rightly termed godly. When I think of godliness as it is described there, people come into my mind that I've known and met through the years of being a Christian. One woman comes to mind from my home church, Westkirk, a lady who was called Mrs. Wallace. And Mrs. Wallace lived on the Peace Line on the Shankill Road, and she was a prayer warrior. She was someone who came outside during all of the trouble at the early part of the troubles and prayed out on the street and encouraged her neighbors to pray with her. She was even someone who, when the peace line was going up and Catholic homes were attacked on the other side, went to those homes and asked if she could pray with those people and took her opportunity to share the hope of Christ with them. Now, is that kind of cloistered away godliness? No, godliness is active. It is lived out in our lives day by day. And so, how does this kind of attitude and lifestyle come about? Is it right back to the beginning, our book, our six steps that we must do, those actions that we must do or avoid? Well, no. 
Paul here talks about what is central to godliness in verse 16. There he describes the, the mystery of godliness. And I want you to listen really carefully to what he says. He's not saying the mystery of godliness is that you do A, B, C, and D, and you avoid G and H and all the rest of it. He says, beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. And then he talks about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Look at it. He appeared in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. In other words, godliness comes about through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ. For we are brought near to God and become the sons of God through Jesus. And the newer version of the NIV translates that first part again. The mystery from which true godliness springs is great. In other words, this is what leads to and results in godliness. It is the gospel. Can you see that the central truths of godliness listed here are all about Jesus? They're all about who He is. They're all about what He has done. And it's such a powerful reminder to us that Christianity is substantially different from all of the other world religions. In fact, it is unique because other religions make the central thing our activity. For other religions, it's about our ceremony, our ritual, our tradition, our worship. But by total contrast, Christianity places Christ at the center. It emphasizes what He has already done and the relationship with God that His activity brings about in His followers. Let's think about our bookshop again. And maybe when it comes to godliness in our bookshop, you would be looking for and you would maybe find a guidebook called The Six Steps to Godliness. And it would be a list of things, a list of chapters on what we do and what we don't do. But Paul gives Timothy a list of six things that God has already done in the Lord Jesus Christ. It really is all about Jesus. It's about His incarnation, His taking on flesh and becoming one of us. It's about His death, His resurrection, His ascension, His glorification. So, the Australian minister, Philip Jensen, who writes the, the Good Book Company, um, commentary, the first and second Timothy for you commentary. He says this about godliness. And please think about this carefully and seek to understand this. In our legalistic minds, maybe we'll struggle with the opening sentence, but listen to all that he says. 
He tells us that godliness requires no rules to keep, no steps to follow, no habits to form, no activities to engage in, no clubs to join, no fees to pay, and there are no key performance indicators to achieve. Because godliness is not about us, but about God and His great mystery of godliness. Believer in Christ, we are not to be people who pin all of our hope on self-help and our own determination to reform. If we do that, we will be utterly hopeless because I know what my resolve is like and I suspect yours is equally shaky. We're not to be self-help people. We are gospel people. And right at the heart of the gospel is that assertion, no, I couldn't do it myself, but I am so thankful that my God did it for me in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. And it should be all about Jesus in your life. It should be all about Jesus here in Connor Presbyterian Church. Because our godliness comes about through Him. And then so much of this letter is the outworking of this, because it's not that these things are unimportant, it's that we get things in their proper order. And we'll come to some more of that teaching on godly living next week. But I finish by asking, are you a gospel person? At a very basic level, have you been transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ? In your life, is it all about Jesus? Or actually, even though you may name Him as Savior, is it much more about self-reliance? about attempts at self-improvement that take the focus off the gospel of Jesus Christ and make it all about you. May we be godly people. We are the pillar, the foundation of truth. It's a high calling. And we need to be godly people. But may we be godly people because we are gospel people. Amen.